I'm Grace, CEO and founder of Cultural Calculator, and this is The Culture Coach, where we share the wisdom and knowledge from the trailblazers who have broken new ground through their approach to leadership, team building, and ultimately creating cultural change for the better. Created and sponsored by Cultural Calculator. The second ever Culture Coach we've got on the show today is an incredible woman. She has been a cultural change consultant for the past 30 years, an executive coach for the past 30 years, and has quite an unusual background in terms of building her consultancy based on psychotherapy training, as well as meditation training. She has coached and trained thousands of people. She's done hundreds of cohorts of development programs across topics like collaboration, leadership, um, well-being, and she's with us today. She also happens to be my mum, <laughs> and her name is Nicola Temporal, and I'm so excited to have her here because, as you can imagine, in the work I do, she has been such a massive source of inspiration for me. So, hi, Mum. Hi, Grace. <laughs> I would love to hear from your perspective as you think back to the early stages of your career. Mm -hmm. What was it in you that thought, you know, 30 years ago, oh, actually, there's a role for my psychotherapy training mm -hmm. in a business room? Like, mm. what? triggered that link for you? Well, actually, it was 35 years ago I was training in a therapy called psychosynthesis. To be honest, I needed to earn money in order to pay for the psychotherapy training. And so management development training was the easiest route in. And I met somebody there and I, I did a lot of training of in Apple. And then I went into oil and specialized a lot in um, uh, in the oil industry, particularly around, yeah, Shell in Norway, um, around uh, building collaboration between big teams, putting in superstructures, obviously like the big oil wells. So I learned a lot there. And then what happened was uh, England started to look at, Britain rather, started to look at a thing called partnering in the construction industry. And they found that they were losing lots and lots and lots of money with a thing called claims. And they had old contracts called ICE fifths. And the ICE fifth contract was all about, it almost set the relationships up so that it pitted person against person. And what that led to was if you were bidding for a job, the mindset that you, for survival that you had to go into is you had to lie to get the job. And we called it, um, you'd, you'd basically bid the lowest price, then you'd work out, you'd have big teams to work out, okay, how do we make our money back when we win the job because we're the lowest price? Big QS teams for that. So um, it was going from problem to problem and the market of partnering opened up and they were looking for people who'd work with kind of complex collaboration. And I happened to have done so much in the oil industry. I got my opening into the construction industry and all very opposite cultures to who I actually am. In the background, I'm there with meditation and psychotherapy and that's more about who I am. So how can that not inform my work? How can that not inform the, the lens whereby I come to a group of human beings who are pitted against each other 
And I could obviously see there was another possibility. And so all the models and the frames and the training that I offered was to shift a mindset from being um, adversarial, transactional, to more we-focused and collaborative. So on that point you mentioned there of how could I not bring this into my work because Mm. it's part of who I am, Mm. do you think that is a perspective that's shared by the many? Do you think that that's a common way of looking at work? No, I think people separate their head and their heart a lot. I remember one person saying to me quite early in my career, said, don't you think it's very interesting how the uniform of business is a tie, which literally the tie cuts the head from the best of the torso. And that really spoke to me. And I thought, God, I need to get people taking the ties off, metaphorically speaking, because if the heart informs the head, humanity, we are actually pack animals. The collaborative state is more our natural state than the combative one. But... Until you get a direct experience of that, you're still following in a trance the idea that it's survival of the fittest and you've got to do what you've got to do to survive. What I observed is when people were doing what they had to do to survive, I found that win-lose, that mindset always led to lose-lose. It ended up in the construction industry with people in contractual arguments, uh, payments didn't happen, people went bust, um, I remember being in one contract and observing people going, the actual contractors going, oh, there's going to be a mistake there. There's going to be a mistake there. There's going to be a mistake there. And I I said, well, are you going to tell the client? No. Why not? No, we're going to build it all. Then they'll see the mistake and then we'll get our money back because we had to bid the contract low. That was the game that I walked into. And it was all about survival. So my inroad for that was to reconnect people with their hearts and their humanity and the natural state of collaboration and I think you're going to ask me how do I do that (laughs) I'm absolutely going to ask you how you do that first of all there's kind of widening the frame for people to understand the context that they're in and that with every decision and with every action they create a future and the question is is how does today's actions, behaviors, and decisions inform your futures. So getting people to look at their strategic context and then build in a pause from that trance of, right, well, we do it this way, we've always done it this way, and we all know where it's going to head to. So very early on, first of all, and I said to people, don't forget that the seeds of destruction are in the agreements you make. So really watch out what contracts you sign. Really watch out the the future you're creating, right? So once that's in play, I could then say, right, we've now got a wider perspective on why we're here. And I could invite people towards, now let's get to know each other. Let's remember we're people and build the relationship. Because without a high quality relationship or some personalness coming in, um, people, people's creativity and inventiveness doesn't flow. And if you don't have the creativity and inventiveness, you won't get the ideas, you won't get the value generation, et cetera, et cetera. And there was a guy called Deming going back. He, he was the master of total quality management going way, way back. And uh, he said one of the first things you need to do is drive fear out of the organization. It's one of the biggest obscurations to collaboration. Uh, one of the biggest fails that needs to be opened. And so one of the things I used to say to people, if in a workshop 
I can get you to the point where you can trust someone enough to tell you tell them that you don't trust them, then we're beginning to get authentic with each other. Then we can start building um, a new ground together that's more informed by our fears, our sensitivities, our transparency. And the the, the pitfall of it is because uh, we, we built some great, great uh, projects over the years. And then late on in the project, some smart ass could come in and go, oh, but if we just do this, we could just get a little bit more juice. Let's drive their price down. Or that would be on the client side. Or on the contractor side, oh, let's just not tell them about that, just just to get a little bit more money. And that was the point I, I would also talk about, just uh, try and intervene and, and, and get people early enough that they didn't do that. Because the tendency, the power of that self-preservation. So because I started seeing in projects that it creeps back in and creeps back in and creeps back in, I created a thing called the relationship journey. So that dialogue took place throughout. And of course, you have taken that brilliantly, did something that I couldn't do. And you've, you've taken that, what would I call it, blueprint, and you've, you've made it into something incredible like this wallpaper. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you so, really have brought, you brought color and texture and, you know, more interest and flow and flair. Well, interestingly, when you say that tendency for it to creep back in, creep back in, creep back in. Mm. And your solution for that is mm. dialogue. dialogue. All the way. But why do you think that's a solution? How does that actually help that scenario? If we take it as a given, okay, and it's not a human failing, that the impulse to protect yourself is going to keep arising as a phenomenon. It just is. We are made up of self, the fight-flight-freeze, but we're also made up of an angelic heart too that wants to collaborate and be at peace and be at ease. And actually the most fulfilling that I've witnessed human beings is when they're really connected into the flow of that and that they can relax into it and trust it. Um, and that's where I say innovation really happens in a very, very different way. And people gang up on the problem rather than each other. So I've seen both and I witnessed both. And so you have your kickoff workshops or whatever, and you also train people in the basic skills of collaboration as well so they get a shared common language. But then somebody like myself traditionally wouldn't see them again or you just do the kickoff and then you disappear. What I saw was, no, you need, because it's a given that anything can happen that's going to default people back to the comfort zone of self-preservation, they need the constant reminder to come together before resentment builds, have the conversations early. And if you have them early enough, then the, the, uh, um, the self-preservation the self vehicle in our psyche doesn't get enough time to grow weeds. It's like weeding your garden, actually. It's probably a good metaphor. Yeah. You know, you really need to stay on top of the weeds. Yeah. And we're all... We're all full of seeds of weeds as well as seeds of joy, inventiveness, and, yeah. you know, we're both as human I beings. I actually really love the way that you just remove the judgment out of this idea that actually it's such a natural tendency to want to protect ourselves. And mm. the more that we can make peace with the fact that that is a reality of being a human being with the ego structure that's developed from a very young age, it's mm. instinctive, it's there. The more that we can accept that that is the case, mm -hmm. 
the more of an opportunity there is for actually making wiser decisions from a deeper place that is more connected to our hearts. But I feel there are so many people that don't want to even admit to themselves that they have those kinds of mm. defenses in play, yeah. that they have those impulses in play. And that's mm. almost half of the battle. It is. So part of the training and the development is personal awareness and personal mastery, getting people to settle into um, accepting the fact that we are defended, we are protective, um, but we also have longings to to connect more profoundly to each other as human beings. Then the next thing I talk about is personal mastery, because it's not enough just to have awareness. You then have, need to have mastery over the impulses. Yeah. This brings in, and anybody watching this who has trained with me, and I hope they will, they will know that uh, this is my segue into meditation. Um, Can we just pause for a moment? Because for people unlike myself that have sat in on many a training course mm. um, with you as the teacher, for people that don't know what personal mastery is, can you provide a definition of the okay. discrimination between mm. personal awareness versus personal mastery? Okay. So right now in this moment, I'm yeah. aware that my heart is beating fast and I feel a bit self-conscious. So there's my self-protection mechanism. I can feel boom, 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 boom. I don't know if the microphone fit like that. But I can feel that. But equally, I can contain it because my mastery is in my breathing. I put my mind in my feet. That takes my center of gravity from being up here to actually de redistributing my energy. So I'm feeling the nervousness if I put my mind in my feet, my awareness now in my feet, I'm, I'm feeling very solid on this chair and I can tolerate the nervousness. I don't have to go into being fidgety in a reactive way yeah. to go with the, or speak faster, yeah. which often happens with people. I can stay in my body and I can stay contained. That's the mastery. Yeah. It's actually, again, similarly, it's almost learning to live with feelings of anxiety is a natural part of yeah, our human experience for sure without it having to become us yeah yeah it's kind of interesting as another example there is um because i think another tendency that people use they use it to defend themselves and also to discharge um fears yeah. is blame mm -hmm. the blaming ego and that is huge in business um and we do blame, the blaming ego acts out in two ways. Either we go to self-blame, which takes us into doubt and the itty-bitty shitty committee in our head telling us we're not good enough, or we externalize that blame onto others. It's like it's their fault. They made me feel this way. And so that's, that's a massive part of the self-preservation ego structure, but there's a particular aspect of it. So the other day, for example... Um, your dad was opening some wine in my new kitchen. Well, it's his kitchen too. Notice the self-pres there. Um, in the kitchen, opens the wine, and the red wine goes over the white cabinets. I'm so glad I wasn't there. <laughs> well, there were two guests there. And I, and, I, and I was really aware that I wanted to shout at him. I wanted to blame him for not being careful enough. As if 
he did it on purpose. Of course, he didn't do it on purpose. And so um, I got the cloth and I said, I'm feeling a narrative right now. And I just spoke it out because I'm an extra. I'm feeling a narrative that I want to blame you, but I know you didn't do it on purpose. And I'm mopping and I'm just speaking it out and without any rage in my voice. You know, I found it quite funny, really, just how quickly. So the fact that I was so detached, although observing myself and speaking it out, I think dad had gone off to make himself a cup of tea. But that was my mastery in that moment, not to get into a conflict with another person yeah. when the in the effect, the impact of something happening that I'm invested in, it's a new kitchen, you have to understand this, and it's white. <laughs> so um, my investment, it's mm. not him that became the problem. It was my investment in my goal to keep a white kitchen clean. Now, you just imagine leaders... They have investments in all sorts of things, right? And and they want their goals met and they want them now. And they ignore that there's a complexity sometimes that comes in. So we go much more to blame. It seems much quicker mm -hmm. to do that than to go to actually let me get a wider perspective here. Let me notice myself as well as the other, as well as the context, and let my behavior come out of that wide-angled lens mm -hmm. rather than a narrow, reactive blame culture yeah so you know we've worked with a lot of breakdowns in projects as well we call it a breakdown when that blame has become so powerful that even the monitoring of people like we do um uh isn't doing its job we do another thing called breakdowns and this is where people are so committed to their version of the truth you need to let them speak that out give give airtime to the self-preservation, to that which they're invested in. And then from there, the transparency arises, people hear each other, and then reconnection builds again. Away from, you melt the blame and come back to connection because blame is a, is a state of disconnection, mm -hmm. which creates even more anxiety. Yeah. Right. It's interesting because even listening to you talk about that, I know there's so much in your training you put towards listening, for example. So, mm -hmm. you know, it almost sounds like a simple thing to create that transparency, create a space for people to share their experience and be heard. But even to truly feel heard, there's a lot of skill that has to be in the space in terms of how others are listening. I think listening is the greatest gift we can give each other, first of all. And sometimes I'm skillful and sometimes I'm not, depending on how invested I am in an outcome. There's your awareness and mastery, okay? So um, so even for somebody like me who does training in it and practices it, it's you're quite right, it's not easy to be really fully present. So listening is a present moment skill. In business, people are so goal-orientated. They're either in the future or they're protecting themselves from something that's happened in the past. And so the real listening exchange doesn't happen. And, and it's much more about giving people your attention. And I talk about listening on three levels. At the level of the head, because we have an antennae. You know, we, we're listening. It's not just with our ears. It's a whole body listening. So... Right now, your listening might take you to the logic and the way what I'm saying stacks up in a logical frame. Then there might be some emotions arising. So that's the feeling level of, of, 
of your listening. And then there's what's called the the will center, the doing, which is kind of another feeling, but I kind of separate them out because um, this is about drive, motivation, about doing. And what I've noticed over the years is people listen at the level of two channels to the exclusion of one. So they're either good thinking, willing listeners or they're so identified with feelings, they, they lose logic and can completely, you know, them, but what they might do is, I want this conflict to resolve so their will is all in. I want this feeling to go away of conflict. So it might be in result, you know, so the will center is charged up by the emotional center. Mm. Um, in business, I get a lot of thinking and will and a lot of the attention has to go back to the heart, actually. So, yeah. It's interesting because when I even think about myself and the way I listen, I would say I find it very effortless in a way to listen to logic and feelings. But the challenge for me comes with listening to someone's will, because if I feel their motivation isn't lining up with what they're actually saying in terms mm -hmm. of their logic or what they're expressing mm -hmm. in terms of their feelings, the step it would take me to challenge like what their motivation is. Do you know what I mean? To almost go against okay. what it is I'm hearing. But that's questioning technique. You're right. The listening is present. Yeah. So this is like, you know, you've got a friend who says they want to stop smoking. Yeah. They've got all the logic. They've seen all the pictures on the on the on the the thing telling yeah. them this is what's happening to your lungs. It will kill you. And they know that. So that data is there. They can even have a longing to give up. Yeah. You know, and feel quite bereft about the stranglehold. But the and but the will can't quite engage. Yeah. That is a will center issue. So if I'm a if I'm managing somebody or leading somebody from a performance perspective, there's no course correcting that person at the level of logic. They've got the logic. But what I see with leaders and managers, they just give them more logic. Well, that's not going to go anywhere, is it? So then it comes to your questioning technique. And that would be in summarizing, I really you know, I really understand your logic and I'm noticing you've mentioned this this word about your feelings a few times. Could you expand on that? You might say that. And what do you want to do about it? So the fact you're not hearing that. I've been in lots of meetings where people are sitting there and everybody's agreeing the items they're going to do at the end of the meeting. Yeah. And then people walk out and I'll go, you look a bit deflated. Yeah, well, we're not going to do any of that. How do you know? Well, we just know. You can just feel it in the room. Yeah. And it's like, well, why? Remember the seeds of destruction are in the agreements you make? Yeah. Well, we've just created a load of waste for ourselves. That meeting might might as well not have happened. Nobody was actually checking in on the will center at the end of the meeting, even though they were hearing it wasn't switched on. Yes. But they override that because of reasons of it'll come across as confrontational rather than, in fact, it's the most authentic thing I can do is to just check, how could we get in our way? How, are, may we, how might we sabotage our best intentions here? There's lots of ways to ask questions if you're picking up yeah. that the will centre isn't engaged. This has actually become a big part as well of how we've developed and designed the cultural calculator platform. So whether we're building personal development action plans, you know, there are models in there to really support someone tuning into is this meaningful to me? Yeah. Is this really what I want and yeah. feel motivated to act on? Yeah. And equally in parallel processes for building team action plans about the environment, mm. you know, we don't jump straight into action 
and saying, oh, we're going to do this, 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 and this. There's a whole kind of exploratory um, set of exercises before that point that even then when you start to define actions, we get people to pause and prioritize how important really is this to do? Mm-hmm. Because there's actually so much slowing down in the process to really get connected. Again, it comes back to this thing of mm-hmm. connection mm-hmm. to to get back and connected to what do we really want? Sounds mm. like such a simple question, mm. but it's it's often one that has a lot of confusion and noise around it. Mm. It does. And, and one does need to take a lot of time on that center. I think it gets overlooked. Um, we, we, we say agreement and alignment is not the same thing. You know, just mm-hmm. agreeing to something glibly is not the same as being truly aligned mm-hmm. and getting at the thinking, feeling, willing level behind your movement through life, right? So in terms of being truly aligned, I know earlier you were about to segue into your meditation mm. training and why as well throughout your career and doing this kind of work it's progressively become, you know a bigger piece of that pie and more and more at the center of what you do. So I feel like being truly aligned is quite a nice step into you talking about that a little bit more. Okay. Well, I want to take it back to actually going back to listening because we quickly got into the interactive listening, right? Um, And there's a step before that, which is how can you listen interactively if you're not listening with your gaze inward to know what's going on inside you. So if you're not in attunement and listening is about attunement, it's about really slowing down. It's about suspending our, our agendas. It's about being truly curious in the moment without defense. The best defense is no defense in listening. Do you know how hard that is? The yes, but, culture and sometimes I do it brilliantly and sometimes I don't and I can tell you the difference that makes the difference is the investment in something if, if you're invested in any way it will get in the way of curiosity how can it not if you've already decided have you ever tried listening to someone who knows they're right have you ever tried listening when you know you're right I'm asking the audience, have you ever, just think what happens to your listening when you know that you are right. Notice it completely collapses curiosity. One of the freest, juiciest attributes to being a human being that leads to innovation and expansion and creativity. It also completely takes you out of the present moment because you're kind of going in there with a direction that you've already decided. So you're no longer truly available to the present moment and what arises. Right. You've you've gone off, you've gone walkabout with some idea. Yeah. So, so, you know, meditation does come in here. I'm going to sort of, so to be, it's almost like I, I, so I'm going to bring it back to meditation to really listen is present moment It's about giving your attention and curiosity, having presence towards yourself, being able to know when you're not listening. So I have a signal. What happens with me is my eyes start to glaze over. And I realize it's a bit like when you're driving a car and you sort of, you're at junction 10 and you go, but last time I was aware, I was at junction 14. So what happens in the junctions in between? It's like you suddenly wake up. So I have a signal in me that I start to 
uh, I can feel the eye and I, right, course correct. I'm, that tells me I'm not listening. Back to listening. So this is like meditation, right? You, you, you stay very attuned and very awake and aware to what's going on internally while it's being present externally in a very, you know, present moment, curious way. And, and there's no knowing, like in this conversation, what's going to unfold next. I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth next. <laughs> so, and I don't even know what I've said so far. I mean, I'm not holding, I'm in the flow of it. And that's the point, you know, this, it's in, this incredible interaction. So to get really comfortable with that, we have to suspend and hold more lightly because you can't completely let go of your investments. I think that's a really big ask, given what I said at the beginning about self-preservation and the I, me, we. Have you ever heard that? There's a very good George Harrison song. Is it me, we, I or something? Me, myself, I. You know, that, that me, myself, I, me, myself, I. That noise comes into us very, very quickly, okay? So um, being very aware of that in yourself and being able to go, oh, me, myself, I is back. <sighs> present. So it's just the same as when you're meditating, the um, the narrative of me, myself, I, the grasping, the grabbing, the planning mind, the reflecting mind, the blaming mind, the replaying conversations mind, everything, you know, we, we our minds are switched on and are not going to stop being switched on. And they're attuned as well to the self-pres. So um, just like the heart's not going to stop beating, the mind isn't going to stop chatting. So I teach meditation to support people in business having a, um, a pause between stimulus and their response. Because meditation, the way I'm describing it, being able to track myself while I'm in speech and connection with you, so it's both and, I'm with me and I'm with you, and then what arises in the middle is a mystery, okay, because we're not actually invested in anything, so we the chemistry will offer us what it offers us, uh, is why I teach meditation, to just get people into the present moment. So they've got the capacity for all these other skills, like personal mastery, personal mastery over their self-preservation toolkit. And what's the journey been like to having, I guess, people be even open to that? Because there's a lot more out there now about, about meditation mm. there's a lot of silicon valley hot shots that you know meditate every day like it is becoming a much more sort of normalized um thing to do to elevate um the potential of our own minds but when you started this work that was not necessarily the case. In fact, no. it would have been a very alien concept mm. to be talking about that in a business yeah. room. Yeah, I've been doing this for meditation I brought in about 20 years ago. So, yeah, that's true. I think in my case, you know, as a principle of teaching, take people from the known to the unknown. And my background before being a therapist was to be a teacher. And I kind of took that principle. So really being aligned to the client's strategic context and then helping them see for themselves how they get in their own way with their own reactivity and anxiety and how they're basically doing their own business in by setting up contracts the way they do or making some decisions the way they do gave me the perfect context to say, look, best tool I know for slowing down 
would be this one called meditation. And we need to become Olympic athletes at facilitating ourselves in order to navigate the ups and downs and the complexities of business or life actually in general. But they wanted me to talk to them about business. So I didn't go to the philosophy of life. So do you see what I mean? So yeah. that gave me, and, and to be honest, they, they couldn't help but agree. <laughs> so um, meetings would start with a few minutes meditation and then a thinking, feeling, willing check-in. And so people right at the start of the meeting were on a different plane of quality of relationship to start talking about their issues and their problems that they had with each other. So one of the places that you brought meditation into mm. um, was on a big construction project mm -hmm. with actually the construction workers that were on the ground that were living away from home, not necessarily having the healthiest lifestyles, yeah. not necessarily having the healthiest mental health. Yeah. And there was a big, um, essentially research project you facilitated yeah. called the Wheel of Wellbeing, mm -hmm. where these people, I assume none of them had ever meditated before. No. Right. And how long did the project last? 10 weeks. 10 weeks mm. um yeah it'd be great if you can explain that because it feels like that was quite a pivotal moment as well in terms of actually illustrating the level of impact encouraging this in a workplace environment can have mm. I had been in that long-term project for quite a while and we'd won a lot of awards for our culture um, and the training, the development, this particular client got a thousand percent behind the idea of best defense is no defense, um, building a culture of, I trust you enough to tell you, I don't trust you, seeds of destruction and the agreements you make, all of these, these, these ideas and enacting them. And they put their leaders and their managers through collaboration skills, leadership training. And we had, well, we now have the gift of, of you there because you've automated it all. But for me, it used to be old Excel spreadsheets, but you've done a fabulous job of embodying the work in the platform. So very grateful for that. Um, uh, but, you know, f for them, they're quite empowered and they were used to the language. I went on site. So this was all for much more middle managers. I went on site to see a particular um a particular site and I was visiting them and the guys were working on bridges um in very confined spaces like this at this angle all day like this and so I said to the leader um when do they take rests and they said oh they can take it whenever they want and and I said and what happens to the temperatures and he goes well it can get very um it can get very hot and then it get very cold and I said well how do they know when it's time to take a break? Well, they know they're allowed to, but I said, how do they know? And they went, well, they just know. And I said, well, look, if I give you the idea of thirst, by the time you're thirsty, you're already dehydrated. Well done. <laughs> okay, so me just saying that brought some awareness to you, right? And so um, if that's the case, um, and actually what we were getting 
at that time, there was a lot of stats coming out about how suicide rates were very high, higher in the construction industry than any other industry. You have such a mix of backgrounds. Um, and, and in those backgrounds, there can be trauma and all sorts of um, all sorts of experiences, life experiences that are very challenging and not a lot of support. And I thought to myself, all the leaders and the managers get so much support. What about these guys? I reached out to the leaders and I put to them that mindfulness talk to this particular population. It'd be interesting to see what happened to the whole culture of the site if we did. And we followed a theory by a guy called Lewin, where the person plus the environment they're in leads to behavioral change. So you have to work at the level of the person and at the level of the environment as well. So here's an example. So um, if you want to get changes of behavior, so we gave people lots of information. So we did toolbox talks about well-being, self-esteem, diet, all of that kind of stuff. Then there was addition to that, a, a group that did that and meditation. And then we tracked the well-being of, of all parties. And unequivocally, the ones that did both, um, their well-being and their experience of living expanded hugely. And it was one of the most fulfilling projects I think I've ever done in my life. Because people came in just not knowing. And um, the environment side of the of the P, the person. So I had a group sitting there and I had people who didn't want to come at first looking through the window and getting curious. And then more and more came because they saw that the guys who had decided to take part, well, one person came who said he'd never come at the very beginning. And, he, and he, I said, why are you here? And he said, because he's getting more sleep and I want more sleep. I went, okay. Whatever brought people in, um, then uh, we had another guy. Then the culture on site started to change as well. So. Just to be really clear. Yeah. So it was essentially an experiment. It was. And the experiment was based on the concept that, that to create um, behavioral change, yeah. you can't just change the environment. No. You have to also focus on the person. On the person, yeah. And so your way of taking that theory and actually putting it in place on site in an experiment was to create two groups of people. One group who was part of a series of educational talks about health, yeah, and then a second group that got access to all the talks about health mm -hmm. plus. They were trained in meditation. Yeah, and it was a 10-week meditation program. Yeah. And we 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 got them to benchmark where they were at the start and um, and also then at the end and then tracked. So, of course, it's subjective at that level. I mean, yeah, you get figures and stuff, and the figures told their story, um, and it was quite a clear story. But the thing that was the most surprising thing was because as the person changes, so does the environment then the environment then changes the person and you get this positive uh, spiral. So there's the meditation going on, the person outside. He comes out, talks about getting better sleep. This person comes in. Now you've got two people walking around talking about meditation and reflectiveness. Then, you know, we did all sorts of things like, you know, each week I would do a theme that matched the toolbooks talks, but to, to meditate on, so such as self-esteem or 
you know, because of the whole suicide background and the, some of the experiences that people had had, I wanted to make it relevant to their lives as well. So, um, but then what started to happen is guys started up on the scaffolding talking about their home lives, something in that particular po uh, population they don't do. Mm. So suddenly... It's got nothing to do with meditation. The environment's changing because people are being able to listen to themselves at the level of their minds, their feelings, and their will. And this motivated conversations. The leader then said to me, he said, Nicola, the whole thing's changed. That dear man, Martin. He said, the, 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 he said, I'm not having people come to me with the issues they used to because they're sorting conflict out themselves. We're getting better supervisory levels. I had another guy who was in charge of painting who used to sack people as soon as they're on site and made a mistake. After four weeks of meditation, he came, he came up to me and he said to the whole group, he said, I haven't sacked anybody for three, for three weeks. It might have been later, it must have been about six weeks. It's about three weeks into him meditating. I haven't sacked anybody for three weeks. And the whole group laughed and went, yeah, you have no idea. He sacks them as soon as they go over a line on a paint. And I said, so what are you doing differently? And he said, I'm talking to them. So he, rather than go to his self-prez, perfectionism, reactive, no awareness, the awareness had expanded and the heart had engaged and he was now connecting. And that connection he found for himself led to a better result. Now, you could have sent those supervisors on a many training programs as you wanted, but it would not have worked. They needed to, they, they, they've all been damaged, most of them, by school. They don't want anything you know, classrooms, da, 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 that kind of setting, no, no good. And it took them a few, a few times to trust me that I wasn't here to rinse them with some middle management nonsense. I was here just to create an environment for them to unfold their own wisdom in, for them to connect themselves up. And then everything on site changed, the culture changed, the P, the E, the E to the P. And they are another award-winning, amazing group of people. It makes me emotional um, even hearing about it again because I remember at the time, I literally feel emotional, it's really funny. Um, at the time, I remember helping you write your report. Yeah, you write so much better than me. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and looking at the quotes <laughs> that some of these men had submitted about how this had changed their lives, just the thing that you touched upon there of how stigmatized it was originally to share their inner experience, to mm. talk about um, their home lives in a way that is more real, more true, and just how that transformed, how that changed lives. But also, like you said, this thing that seems so unrelated to business, so nothing to do with their day-to-day -day work, mm. yet had this phenomenal impact mm. on the day-to-day -day work, on the business and the way mm. it was operating. And something that I find even today where there's more awareness of, you know, people throw around the phrase um like happy happy staff like better business like people kind mm. of say these off the cuff comments but mm. I really don't think people are truly connected to the level of impact this has I feel like there's a lot of distrust actually because mm. from the the level of logic when you look mm. at it on a piece of paper mm. you it's hard to make that connection of how 
how giving that space to people to unfold is going to create a better business output for me over here when it's something so personal. It's almost like there isn't yet in a normalized way, in a um, kind of standardized way, that trust that that process can make such a difference. Yeah, and it does. It really does. No, it's, you know, we're we're talking about a kind of post-conventional mindset here. Mm. And I think if you look at the complexities of life that people are navigating now, just right now, the cost of living crisis, you know, how am I going to eat? How am I going to heat my home? How am I going to vote in a, you know, where there's any, a lot of people feel there's only two parties to choose from. I mean, it's all, it's all too simple for the complexity of the issues, climate change and, um, and we need collaboration now more than ever. And we need mindsets. We need heads and hearts connected. We need to be connected back to our humanity. And we need informing coming from the thinking feeling. So the, the, the doing is informed by, you know, I think it's the heart and the head coming together that creates wisdom. So there needs to be wise action in the world. And we need to create environments because... You know, leaders are all the time thinking they're the doers. I make you do something. No, you create an environment for people to perform in. The question for you is what kind of environment are you creating? If you're not aware as a leader, the the probability is you are transmitting your anxiety, the P affecting the E. And you ask yourself, what does anxiety do? Going back to what I said about Deming drive fear out of the organization. Yeah. So the more we can create and generate open, transparent, lovely, fluid flow here and now, giving each other our attention. I mean, watching a lot of people now, you know, you, you with with um, with lockdown, one of the sadnesses for me is the disconnection that happens with people in relationship workshops where or meetings still with their, what do they call it? They're just not on screen. Camera off with their camera off and you know their their attention isn't with the human being in front of them and yet we let each other get away with that and um it's rude for a start (laughs) it's not very good manners is it but but it's a compulsive thing people just want to stay in their own little bubble and this this invitation to connect and relate rather than stay with me myself i is a big battle also it's it's an interesting one because in some respects, like I said, you know, more people know what meditation is these days. It's spoken about more. But then what's also happened in parallel is we have these things called devices and we multitask like mm. never before. Our attention spans mm. are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So mm. it's almost like this these two polar opposite things rising up. Counter at the forces. Same time. The yeah. counter forces. And, you know, so in a way, I mean, it's like going to the gym. Mindfulness is a way of kind of bringing ourselves back, you know. I mean, we talk about doom scrolling, don't we? You know, And when there's particular bits of news, I can go into my doom scrolling myself. And it's like, it's an act of will. Like, not, I'm not going to smoke that cigarette. Yeah. Because it is like smoking, right? Yeah. And so this this personal mastery, awareness is not enough. I'm aware that I'm doom scrolling. I'm aware that I'm doom scrolling. Um, I mean, one of the guys that was on the Wheel of Wellbeing project, I remember him saying, I used to just sit on the sofa with my kid, watch, and, you know, watching whatever, Balamori. And he said, I was sitting on the sofa with my kid, but I was all the time scrolling. And he said, the difference is now I sit on 
the sofa with my kid, and I can sense the warmth between our bodies. I can feel the connection physically as well as emotionally, and I can sense the relaxation of that. And that's become more entertaining to me. That's become the joy. Yeah. But I think we try and mimic joy. We try and mimic it by distracting ourselves. Or we defend ourselves against the disconnection that we might be feeling. For sure. Absolutely. These are all mimics of something else. Yeah. But the richness is in the authentic, transparent, first of all to yourself, and then generating environments that others can be. I mean, a lot on the the big project that I've been working on for many years is they they know it's the path of non-arrival. So that little achiever mindset of theirs, they look at me when they know it's a workshop. We, we know we don't, we have an agenda, but we hold it lightly because we don't know in our listening and in our inquiry and our curiosity, what's going to emerge that's going to, because of complexity, we're going to need to field in here. Yeah. There needs to always be things held lightly. You still need your agendas. You still need your direction of travel, but hold it lightly because there's a thing called complexity. We're living in a world that's volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. That makes the nervous system very agitated as well. The more you can tolerate uncertainty, breathe in it, breathe through it, stay present and stay inquiring, the more you'll be able to navigate this crazy world we're in. There's so much you've spoken about which has been so fundamental to creating cultural calculator like this idea of the path of non-arrival is really at the center of what we're trying to do with that platform Mm. to get rid of this idea that there is this linear line that you can follow of oh if we do these things suddenly the world looks like this to actually get into the mindset of a more agile iterative approach where Mm. actually we can always find more potential if we're willing to look Mm -hmm. we can always expand the potential that is there Mm. um But there's a few questions that I just want to finish off, which I've been asking each guest that comes along. Mm -hmm. So the first is, what makes a toxic culture? I would say an unconscious one. So one which is um, people's reactivity um, without any pauses is allowed to run roughshod over everybody else. And particularly unaware leaders because I think they have a, a duty of care to support an environment of openness and transparency. But if they're not willing to, and don't have the courage to look inward themselves, then, you know, they take, they, they cast, they cast a shadow, right, on others, and that constrains others, and it brings in fear. Um, equally, uh, I love organizations that are less hierarchical because I think hierarchy gets in the way of this as well because the leader is everything and people don't feel free to kind of support the leader in waking up. So, so much is about a culture that is asleep and left to the devices of self-preservation for me is a toxic culture. It's making me smile because I was recently on a retreat which spoke about... um, the phrase humanity is asleep Mm. and how I know business is very different to families of origin, but actually how it's very, very rare for a human to be born into the world with very aware parents. Mm. And I kind of think with this work, 
um, if only, you mm. know, it was more normalized for people to go into themselves when they have kids at such an early age to be able to be bringing that awareness to their parenting for the education system to bring that awareness into how we educate children that by the time people come into the workplace actually <laughs> how different things could be they could be very different if we had more consciousness in our hands when we touch our babies so we're not sort of just changing the nappy in a perfunctory and now the next next thing, now I'm going to give you your food and now I'm going to do that. There's no slowing down. There's no being present. Children are very present moment. We just teach them not to be. We've all been taught not to be. And I suppose a lot of my work is getting people back, getting people back, deconstructing the trances that have been downloaded into our ego development. And that, that is our potential. That's the wonderful thing. We as human beings have a capacity to self-reflect. That makes us different. That makes us different to any other species on the planet. And that's where the hope is. So this kind of leads to my second question, which is, what do you feel makes a great culture? An awake culture, <laughs> a culture that invests in consciousness and, and humanity and social cohesion and not just economics. Um, it breaks my heart that, you know, that all the polarizing that happens in the, um, the inclusion, the exclusion, um, it's about holding complexity, holding it lightly, allowing us to then come in with our incredible observational curiosity, human beings to have the awareness and the empowerment to explore how they're going to navigate these challenges together. You know, gang up on the challenges together, not on each other. So it's relaxing the ego structure that is hungry, grasping and scared, the blame culture, the blame ego, becoming aware that they exist because it's part of me as a human being, but it doesn't have to be the puppet master. Awakeness can be the puppet master. And then building in infrastructure such as cultural calculator to support the awakeness to me and the empowerment of every individual to have a voice that can be heard is a conscious culture. Okay, the final question. Mm -hmm. What is the ultimate tip you could offer for creating cultural change for the better? Meditation. Yeah, don't be frightened of looking inward. You're an absolute wonder. There's so much to discover. Um, there's so much rest to be had, so much ease to be had. And, and from that, so much fulfillment with every action you take, you know, creating a life of peace and ease. So meditation, the, we have a saying, you know, if it's in the way, it is the way. So every time you feel an obstruction like blame or self-preservation coming up that disconnects you from another human being, pause between that and notice the reactivity. Notice where it's coming from. And then ask yourself, is this what I want for my life? Is this what I want for the other person's life? Every action and behavior creates a future. Question is, what future are you creating? <laughs> well, thanks so much for being here, mom. Like there's Honestly, I feel like we could have spoken about so many different things and there's still so much more I feel 
we haven't covered and I would love to maybe cover with you one day, but you know, I said at the very beginning of this, you, despite my defenses and resistances growing up of being determined to not do the same thing my mum does, um, the, I guess, power of this work has been something that has just naturally drawn me in. And the more experience I've had in my career, the more undeniable examples I had of how can we not talk about this? How can we not be thinking about this? How can we not see this as playing a fundamental role in how successful we're going to be as a team? It's it's almost like, um, despite my best efforts, I couldn't deny it. And mm. it is something that really does drive everything I do now. And mm. it's massively to do with having been brought up with you. So thank you. Okay. It's been my pleasure bringing you up. It's been my pleasure being brought up. Yeah. <laughs> Go power of dialogue. Yay. Okay. <laughs>